one thing maybe you can explain to me is how on earth people can't celebrate diversity. How do people not look at that and say, oh my God, that's so much fun, you know, give me LGBTI, you know, give me everything. The more diverse, the more color, it's, it's like a rich tapestry of life. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities, and organizations. I'm so excited for this coffee pod. It's with a true rebel with a cause, an Order of Australia recipient, a New South Wales Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, and someone that's been named a hero of philanthropy by Forbes. I'm talking about Audette Excel, and Audette is the CEO and founder of the Adara Group. Adara has a business and a development arm. The Adara business is one of the earliest examples of business for purpose. They've generated, since they started in 98, more than US $30 million for their Adara development projects. Their Adara development arm touches the lives of well over 50,000 people each year in some of the most remote communities in the world. Audette is an incredible social innovator, and this is a really inspiring conversation. Here's Audette. Very excited to welcome uh, the amazing Audette Excel to our coffee pods. Now, Audette, I think your your life story is in, inspiring and quite incredible. It's one of the most dynamic and and, and truly one that I think reflects that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote so well, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. But I'm very interested to, to kick off by kind of exploring how it all started because correct me if I'm incorrect, but I read that the Australian National Parachute Championships had a fair amount to do with, with kickstarting the pathway you've ended up taking. <laughs> I think the skydiving community would love to uh, to hear that they've been so pivotal in everything that's unfolded. And, and um, you know, you're totally right, Holly. It's been an, a very a journey of a contrarian. You know, I often think that when they bury me, when they, they're going to write on my tombstone, you know, bloody hell, that woman was stubborn. Um, so it is, and, and I also just want to bookmark, you know, that sometimes when you do something in your life and it succeeds, people then suddenly think, you know, you had amazing vision um, rather than just thinking, you know, that was a piece of insanity that somehow unfolded in the right direction. So it's been a bit of a mixture, I think, of of both. But yes, jumping. So um, you're entirely right. Um, uh, You know, my passion for social justice um, has only been matched in my life with my passion for being in the air. And I was an obsessive skydiver uh, for about 15 years of my life. Um, and in fact, last night I was on an airplane looking out at the clouds and thinking, you know, I really wish I was back in the air. There's nothing quite like it. And I believe you know that yourself. I um, do all too well, though. I haven't done the thousand <laughs> jumps I think you've managed to conquer. Yeah, but you know, it's a, well, it's a, it's a just one of those lifelong things, isn't it? You're in the air, you're right, you're a jumper for life, I think, once you could go out the door. Um, it, it's true to say that um, my life changed when I was jumping in the at Korowa in the Aussie National Parachute Champs as a young Kiwi girl and I busted my knee. I had a really hard landing, so I tore a couple of medial ligaments and, and uh, busted my kneecap. And that 
meant that I had to finish my law degree at Melbourne University. And up until that point in my life as a, uh, an active uh, feminist social activist, I had been surrounded at university by people who were driven by social justice and wanting change. But I hobbled into Melbourne University on a pair of crutches because of a skydiving accident and woke up to realize that there was a whole piece of the world I didn't know about, which was the world of power and capital. So it was that accident that led me to Melbourne Uni. Melbourne Uni led me to an understanding of the incredible um, hole in my knowledge around power and capital and a realization that if I didn't learn about power and capital, I was never going to be able to affect social change in the way that I wanted. So you're quite right. You can source it all to uh, a, a crazy hard landing at Corowa uh, in the middle of summer. By all accounts, you were set on a, on a human rights law career, you were due to, you know, kind of following the activism that had been imbued from you in a young age. How did you make the hard turn into corporate law and, and banking and corporate finance? Yeah, that was it's fun, interesting because people who knew me uh, in those days, and if you'd known me, you know, you would have known me as the girl with the big pink streak in her hair, um, who was always getting dragged off motorways by her hair by the police um, <laughs> and with a placard in her hand. So, um uh, it was a huge step out of my tribe, that that decision. Um, and I look back when you have those on that point in my life, and I think we all have them, these pivotal moments where you have an awareness about the need to make shift. And for me, that pivotal moment was at Melbourne University um, as a social activist sitting in a in the CAF talking to an unknown law student who told me that he only studied law because a top QC made $6,000 a day. And I was so shocked that anybody could think about being an officer of the court and studying law to make money. But this, that, that moment of shock gave me the realization of this hole in, in, my, um, in my learning and my understanding. And I on the spot decided I needed to fill it. Um, and I was actually cleaning um, uh, the office, the house rather, of a very senior partner um, uh, of a major law firm. That's how I was paying my way through once I got off my crutches to pay to be at, at Melbourne Uni. So that night he came home while I was cleaning the house. And so I said to him, can you tell me what's the most right-wing law firm in Australia? And, and, and he was totally shocked. He said, I beg your pardon? I said, oh, I'm in the most business-friendly law firm. And, and he said, oh, well. And he gave me that gift that um, as a woman, and I've been given many times, and I'm sure you have too, he said, well, it's a firm in Sydney called Allen, Allen and Hemsley, but you would never get in there. Red rag and- to a bull, I'm guessing. <laughs> Exactly. So I began my career there. Um, you know, I decided that's where I'm going and I just set my sights on it and talked my way in the door. Um, and of course, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I thought I was going to walk into the dark heart of the capitalist empire and instead I walked out of my own prejudice and into a world that I didn't understand and began a learning journey, an amazing learning journey that has allowed me now to use the skills that I've learned through that to affect social change. So I've come full circle. It's taken some of my feminist activists, human rights activist mates, 30 years to forgive me and realize that actually it was a journey that was a, a good one and one that was made with integrity. Um, but it, it unfolded for me from a realization of a desperate need to learn. Um, and and, and the, the probably one of the most profound things for me was confronting my own prejudice, which we really do in life um, when we think that we're living a, a life that's about uh, fighting prejudice. So it was hugely, hugely good for me. And I think that's one of the things that's always amazed me about 
not just that moment in your story, but but how many times you've sort of changed path in a way that most people would look at and be surprised by. In fact, I even uh, I've read that you had to write letters sort of justifying yourself to some of your university professors who couldn't believe that you'd taken that course of action. The, the yeah. conviction in your own beliefs there and that courage to confront biases and to step into an environment that, that was so unknown and perhaps in many ways hostile. How was that to navigate as a, as a young person? And what did you think you needed there to be able to feel confident and, and succeed in that decision-making? Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a, I mean, I, I would say right out of the box that it, it, my journey has not been without a huge amount of fear and self-doubt, as is the journey, I think, of vast majority of women and many people across gender. Um, you know, there have been plenty of moments in my life where I walk into rooms and think, what are you doing here, Audetix? So first of all, I want to say there's nothing fearless about me. I think that it's the tenacity and the stubbornness um, to overcome the voice of, of dissent and no, uh, that's been a bigger driver. But huge part of it too, I think, is holding to your own truth. Um, somehow along the line, um, relatively early, I figured out that integrity uh, and my own truth, holding to that, was it, that was the key thing. You know, if I wanted to die with one thing, it was my integrity and, and walking as close as I could to my own truth. So many of the crazy decisions that I've made or the out-of-step decisions I've made have been about that. Listening to this voice that has said to me, you know, come on, Audette, this is who you really are. You know, you can do it. You can do it. Um, even when people all around me, including people who loved me, um, uh, were telling me, you know, no, no, terrible mistake. I think also the other piece I'd say in terms of tenacity and holding to your own truth and integrity has been about recognizing that it's okay to fail. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, I was enormously well-loved. I was born of incredible people with great values um, who always would have loved me if I was the best cleaner in the world, which, by the way, I reckon I was um, <laughs> uh, for five years, or, you know, whether I, you know, you know kept, gone, went on to heights in other professions. And I always knew, I can remember at really stressful times, different points, I would think to myself, this sort of mantra in my head, you know, no matter what happens next, sun is going to rise and my mum and dad are still going to love me. Mm. And I think everyone needs to find someone in their life like that, whether it's a parent, whether it's a friend, whether it's a lover, you know, whether it's a support group, to have that sense of, okay, even if I fall flat on my face here and I humiliate myself, I'm going to be okay. And and once you think about that, the door to the cage is completely open. You know, you suddenly can step out, throw your hands in the air and do anything the hell you like. Um, so that really has been my journey, I think, um, uh, in terms of the things that have kept me uh, on the right path in terms of where I'm at. Brilliant. And that voice for you, that kind of centre and that anchor, was that something you always had or was that something that you there was a journey to to get to a point where you had that degree of clarity around your own integrity and being able to listen to that kind of true north for yourself. Yeah, true north is a really good way to, to think about it. I think the thing that's consistent in my thinking, and I don't remember a time in my life as a young adult on where I wasn't incredibly passionate and angry about social justice. I don't remember a time where I didn't think that it was horrifying that the fact that I was if I was born, if I was born in New Zealand and, and had a child, I would have a one in 44 chance of dying in childbirth. But if I was born in Uganda, for instance, I would have a, 
uh, sorry, I would have a one in 9,000 chance in New Zealand. I would have a one in 44 chance in Uganda. I don't remember a time when I wasn't angry about the fact that the biggest single problem that was confronting the developed world was obesity and diabetes. But hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who I see as my neighbours could not eat twice a day. So my passion and for social justice, I have just got this compelling feeling that because I'm so lucky to have been born a Kiwi, you know, I have to do something about this inequity. And that stood with me the whole way. Um, and I think that's helped me find my true north um, and, you know, help me decide, yes, this, this, what I'm about to do has integrity. doesn't mean I haven't fallen off the path many times, but always bringing myself back to that centre. Am I using, is this my best use in the world? Am I using my mastery for purpose every single day? Am I trying as hard I, as I can be to be the best person that I can be? I've always been driven by that. I love that. Um, yeah, it has to be, right? I mean, you know, it's funny. I once I love a quote. There's a great quote from the Dalai Lama. I'm not a person of any particular faith, um, uh, but I respect people across all faiths and also other belief systems. Um, but I love this quote from the Dalai Lama, which is, my religion is simple. My religion is about kindness. Mm-hmm. And that really gets to the heart of the way that I think, for me anyway, I, every day I think about trying to be kind and I fail all the time, by the way. You know, I have a conversation and I'll walk away and think, oh, bloody hell, that wasn't very kind or did it or, or, you know, whatever it is. But if you hold on to that simple mantra, you know, just just be bloody kind, which is much harder, harder than you think, a whole lot of stuff unfolds in the way that you live your life. Um, so, yeah, so for me, I think that's always been my true north. Just do your bloody best and be kind. So how did the true north end up be, being applied so differently in the sense of you, how did you go from being uh, a law student that goes to the most right-wing law firm in Australia, running a bank in Bermuda and the stock exchange over there, and then kind of full circle now to, the, to where the journey sort of we meet today, which is yeah. the Adara Group, which you launched back in 98, which has just continued to grow extraordinarily over the last two decades. How did how did that come to pass? Yeah, what a weird journey, right? I mean, you know, like need Wonderfully five bottles. I need five bottles of wine to tell you. And if you'd asked me at the start, and I often say to amazing people who are sort of at the beginning, don't even try to map it, you know, because God knows I could not have mapped what happened to me. Um, I think, you know, first of all, a couple of things are consistent in the story. One is when a door is opened, I believe that you should leap through it, boots and all, no matter how afraid you are. So weird doors opened in front of me at different points. And I went, oh, yeah, okay, bugger it, I'll do that. Um, and and let through the door. But this the story in essence goes from getting into to Alan's doing mergers and acquisitions work and realizing, oh my God, I've been so prejudiced. Oh my God, I love a deal. Oh my God, I'm quite good at it. Um, up to major law firm in Hong Kong, structured finance, project finance, just loving being in Asia before the, the handover, connection on a deal between Hong Kong and Bermuda. And then this really long and strange story about ending up running one of the Bermuda publicly traded banks. I have to say my wonderful family, social activist family, considered the absolute mark, the ultimate, the epitome of my departure from my uh, my radical activist roots was when I started to sign the money in Bermuda or I signed the $5 note because I ended up on the, the monetary authority, the central bank. So I signed the Queen's neck and that's actually framed in my mum's wow. house as a mark of where I've, where I've come from. So, but it was all about um, just going where the journey took me um, and, and not and giving, uh, abdicating control and planning 
um, and just trying to learn. For me, it was all about learning and thinking. And so underpinning the whole journey for me has been thinking about power, capital and distribution of wealth and sitting at the center of some major power in terms of the way that capital moves in the world, for instance, the way that major private sector companies operate. Um, what a learning. You know, I, I could not have paid for the MBA class that I've had in my learning journey um, and doing all those those bits and pieces, but all the time thinking, thinking, how am I going to use this knowledge? What is this telling me? Um, and Adara, you know, as a as a, an organization is, is the result of years and years of thinking about that through this extraordinary lucky journey. So, when you talk about Adara in its early days, uh, what I've read is sort of this pioneering of a new model where the business community thought, hold on, Odette, what are you doing here? Is this a bit of a tax heist? What's going on? And yes. the, the development and nonprofit community kind of weren't welcoming you with open arms either because it was all a little bit different. So how yes. was it to actually, you know, embark on starting an organisation when you really had to go on a journey of even explaining yourself for the first little while to, yes. to both sides of the fence? Yes. Yeah, it was quite funny. You know, the, the not-for-profit community thought I was a drug dealer or a money launderer um, because I've been running a bank and what they saw as an offshore tax haven. And as you say, the business community also. I got a lot of quiet comments. Come on, Aldine, you're not really running a, a business to fund people in poverty, are you? You know, is it a tax structure? So, yeah, out of construct. Back in the day, I'm happy to say that it's hard for people now to know how um, – uh, out of left field, it was to think that a business had responsibility in the world that was wider than its shareholders. To have gone from being a complete outlier to being, you know, all considered to be pretty much in the mainstream of business thinking has been one of the many joys of the journey. Um, in terms of how to manage um, the voice of no mm. uh, and, um, and the voice that tells you don't go out of construct and the voice of fear. A lot of it is a voice of fear, right? So I, and I had that at lots of points, you know, oh my God, Odette, don't you realize you've had so much, you're so lucky to be where you are, you know, don't, don't this is insane, it'll never work, don't step out. You know, no, no one, had one guy famously say to me, um, uh, no one will ever take you seriously in business again. That's when I, I left Linklaters and I went on a couple of years what was really a round-the-world partying trip, but loosely was a round-the-world bicycle trip. Anyway, he Yeah, I've heard it framed as the latter, so that's interesting <laughs> to have the former revealed. It's more the, the former truth comes the out. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of throwing my bike on the top of, you know, the vans of complete strangers that we picked up along the way. It was beautiful. But anyway, I had this one partner say to me, no one will ever take you seriously in business again. So when I ended up as the CEO, a few years later, then I made CEO of um, of this bank. So I cut the article in the Financial Times out about the fact that I was the youngest woman in the world to be appointed as uh, head of a publicly traded bank and I posted it to him. Um, so um, that'll give you a sense of my view on what, what happens to me when you tell me no. Um, <laughs> it's a recurring you know, theme that I'm getting a sense of. <laughs> exactly. You know, I believe, you know, we get to paint our own picture, right? We're the luckiest people in the world. The people that we work with every day, these extraordinary heroes in the developing world, people in incredible poverty, they're amazing entrepreneurs and innovators, but largely they do not get to paint their own picture. We do. And and so we get to make it up as we go along. We get to dream really big. 
Um, and, um, you know, I've always really believed that, um, that if you have that opportunity to paint your own picture and dream big, then man alive, make it a good dream. And when the voice of no comes at you, remember the only voice, it's good to listen because people have lots of great advice for you, but it's really good to remember the only voice that matters is the one in your own head. Mm. And, you know, you're the one running the race, right? Not against anybody, not with anybody. It's your life. And um, so in the end, you have to make your own judgment calls. Um, And I think that that belief um, that this is my life and, you know, don't tell me no was, was, um, you know, I I think it's been pivotal. In fact, I'm still getting that. When the new business that we launched a couple of years ago, Adara Partners, um, uh, which is a very out of construct model involving some of Australia's most well-regarded and famous investment bankers, I did a lot of talking to the senior business community um, before I launched it to tell them what I was doing. And there was one notable guy um, who I hadn't met. um, And I I sent him a paragraph on the construct and the idea. And we walked into the meeting and he started it by saying, hello, uh, this is going to be a short meeting. And I said to him, oh, hello, I'm Audette. Nice to meet you. Why is the meeting going to be short? And he said, oh, I read your stuff and you're going to fail. Wow. Yeah. And and now, now I'm in my 50s now, right? Anyway, I threw my head back and I belly laughed. Mm-hmm. And that really shocked him. And um, and I said, and then I, when I gathered my wits, I said, oh, thank you so much for telling me that. And now he was totally off balance. And, and he said, oh, wh- uh, why thank you? And I said, well, you know, in my journey along the way, every time I've done something out of construct, there's always been some asshole that told me that I was going to fail. And it's always spurred me on to a greater things. And you just became that guy. And and that's the point, right? Oh, I love when, it. People, when people tell you no, you know, listen to your own heart and head and get out there and do your best. Take information in, change course if people are giving you good information. But, you know, it's really do not be afraid, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So tell I mean, me. Holly, you're a great example of that yourself. Oh, that's so, very generous. But with Adara, you know, when you look at the model, you're trying to, you're all of a sudden wanting to bridge this world of business and nonprofit, which is unique in itself. Then you decide that we're going to do the remote and really tricky work too. On top of that, we're going to go work in some of the really, really disadvantaged communities where I think the furthest is a 25 25 day walk. Am I right? Yes, yes, that's right. So how did this this mix of things, the choice of locations, the the issues you were going to focus on, how did did that become the, the chosen direction? Yeah, a good question. Um, I, I, it was a bit of go big or go home. Um, you know, if you're going to throw your, your lot into something, you know, do it well and do it hard. Um, but for me, it's a human rights issue around remote work, which is I believe profoundly that no matter where you're born, you are entitled to essential service delivery, just like me. You're entitled to healthcare and education services. Now, you're entitled to be able to have enough food on the table um, that you can raise your family and have a happy life. So I, I'm a believe as a human right, um, there's a big issue in remote. And what you see when you start to look at the international development community, that there's very little money and very little work done remote because it is so hard. And the bang for the buck argument leads NGO, non-profits, NGOs, but it also leads governments that are fragile or in uh, nascent um, economies or where there isn't great rule of law. Um, it leads them to work in urban settings as well. Um, so when you go really remote, what you tend to find is a massive disparity between those who are in an urban setting and those who are remote. And that was a real 
be in my bonnet. Um, I also was really, uh, I really determined not to replicate service delivery. Like there are some brilliant NGOs out there already in the government. I'd never want to do work that is contrary to what a government is doing and, you know, unpick, you know, a growing government. So I thought going to places where no one's working mm-hmm. and having a crack um, at bringing service, it sort of met a whole lot of, it ticked off a whole lot of things for me. And and obviously remote, and particularly for us landlocked countries, um, which are so much poorer by virtue of the fact that they're landlocked, um, you know, it, it just met every um, need I had to work in, in uh, with the ex- people who are the most vulnerable people on the planet. I also really was interested in seeing if I could put the most advantaged people on the planet, investment bankers, and get them working right across the most disadvantaged, right? Like, you know, how joyous is that, that you can have an investment banker running, you know, UBS or Goldman Sachs or whatever it is, or do these huge deals, these major corporates, basically holding hands with some extraordinary villager, you know, who's living a life, trying to raise kids or trying to become an entrepreneur or a woman, you know, trying to become literate, um, and get herself out of a poverty trap, you know, one end of the world to the other. That sort of sense of holding hands across the furthest divide that I could think of was just too much fun not to give it a try. I love that. And it goes to the heart of a quote that really grabbed me in a speech that I was listening, uh, that, you, that was online that you'd given. It said, I believe that you need to make change, you need to engage. If you don't get down from the hilltops or the moral high ground and engage, then you won't affect sustainable change. Yeah. How, how did that insight, and I think that's such a powerful one, particularly in development, inform the model of leadership within the organisation that you've set up? Because I think what's beautiful about Adara is the diversity of the leadership and the fact that you've drawn so many of your leaders from the communities that you serve. Yeah, that's such a, that's one of the many great joys, right? One of the things I feel quite um, embarrassed by is the fact that because I've been the front face, I get huge credit for what's happened. And actually the truth is when you stand and you try to do something interesting with integrity and help people, amazing people step out of everywhere to help you. So, you know, we've got this team, the internal Adara team, you know, we uh, is, is made up of, you know, PhD medical anthropologist, senior professors of anthropology, development specialists in child trafficking or child protection, investment bankers. You know, we've got a woman who's running our business who was the a finance director at Groupon. I mean, really, it's this amazing mix. We've got Ugandans, Nepalis, Americans, Bermudians, Australians. Um, you know, we work with, we've got Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, you know, people of other faiths, people of no faith. I love that. In fact, I, one thing maybe you can explain to me is how on earth people can't celebrate diversity. How do people not look at that Bubbles and say, oh my God. God, that's so much fun, you know, give me LGBTI, you know, give me everything. The more diverse, the more color, it's it's like a rich tapestry of life and and it's beautiful. It's got so many colors and that that's one of the things that I just rejoice in and feel so proud of with Adara. That's us. We're the whole span, right? And I just never understood why people are afraid of that. I love um, the passion I, that exudes out of you when you talk about this. It's brilliant. <laughs> Uh, but it's but you know it's so true, right? You know this yourself, and the, the people that you're working with. One thing I love about Gen Y millennials, God, you're all thinking with this much an unlimited frame compared to the way my generation thought. Um, and I'm pretty good now because of engagement. You know, I stood on a hilltop and threw stones. I got down and sat in nuance in the middle. 
That's what I've done. I set an engagement. Um, and 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 so now I see with your generation, you know, you, you're so much better at seeing us as a global community and embracing. But I and I but I'm good at getting into other people's heads. People, you know, really, really people who come from a different uh, way of thinking than I do. But I can't understand the thinking that tells you that there is anything other than joy in celebrating diversity. I've never been able to understand it. And somebody please explain to me how that's not the most wonderful thing in the planet. You know, it's like we want to eat only one kind of food. We want to drink only one kind of bottle. I don't get it. So that's something that's a big question mark in my head. I'm still trying to understand it. Um, but anyway, Adara models the opposite and, and it makes it a great place to work. Doesn't it? And I imagine that would be core to being able to be innovative in the way that you are in the sense of being able to tap into this diversity of perspectives. Yeah. And I'd love on that note for you, I think you're what you're about to do with your CPAP uh, technology is just a, an absolute game changer for infant mortality and, and for so many developing communities around the world. I'd love if you could talk about what it is you're about to unleash uh, on the global community there. Yeah, that's great. I tell you what, I'm joking around in Nadara and we're all saying, God, it's all going to come down to a bottle and a tube. <laughs> so um, just as a backstory, you know, we've worked in newborn health, particularly with at-risk babies, low birth weight babies and premature babies in remote settings now for 19 years, going on 20 years and t- delivering tertiary level medical care. So that's neonate intensive care work, really high care in really remote places without electricity, at least without consistent electricity supply. And uh, and on the contrary, but everyone told us not to do that, but we went ahead and did it anyway. So we're amongst the world's leaders in that work. Um, and we now have this amazing partnership with this huge Ugandan hospital. Um, and we take 1,200 babies a year through our NICU, 7,000 mums a year in maternity. And it's become a centre of excellence, not just for East Africa, but for the whole of the developing world. So it's kind of a, a, a model of what's possible. In that work, when you start to really get into NICU, you start to realise that access to blended air and oxygen, that first breath, the first minute, the first hour, the first 24 hours is beyond critical. It's critical not only to your survival, but it's critical to whether or not you survive without any form of brain damage. And in the West, if you have a baby, a beautiful, precious child that happens to be a preemie, and the first thing they'll do, because little preemies, their lungs generally aren't developed enough to open fully to be able to take a good breath. And so what happens to help a baby breathe at those critical moments in the West, there's this fantastic service that you get. It's all computers and blood sats and lab tests. And it's a very, very finely tuned pressure into a baby's lungs to allow the baby to help the baby open its tiny wee lungs. In the developing world, there's nothing. And so those babies, they struggle desperately for breath and they either die uh, uh, within the first 24 hours or they become brain damaged. And to give you a sense of the size of the prize, we think about a million babies a year die in the first 24 hours of life of respiratory distress wow. in the developing world. Yeah. So this is a huge issue. And we've been trying to tackle it for the whole journey and figuring out how on earth do you get breath into these babies' lungs when you can't, don't have consistent power supply? So over the years, we've worked with a concept called bubble continuous uh, positive airway pressure. It's bubble CPAP. And it's no more complex than taking an oxygen cylinder and, and bubbling a tube from the oxygen cylinder through water, bubbling the oxygen through water. And the deeper you sink the tube, 
the deeper the the, the deeper the pressure. You know, when you're scuba diving. Um, so it's all about put, simple concept. And in fact, in the West, a concept, a similar concept, was used as CPAP was being developed 50, 60, 70 years ago for us. And so we started with the a little, a little bottle in a tube um, and we did multiple service deliveries like that very successfully, hundreds, um, as we worked on that. But the big nut we couldn't crack was how you, you blend air and ox- ox- air into that oxygen because if you feed a baby pure oxygen, one of the terrible things that can happen because their wee, little wee eyeballs aren't developed enough is their eyeballs might bleed and they'll go blind. So the wow. most, most okay. famous... Most famous premier in the world who was fed pure oxygen is Stevie Wonder. So, so that's why in the West this is really complex because that you're being fed air and oxygen from all these uh, different machines. They're all tied up to computers and electricity. How could we do it? We spent years thinking about bleeding uh, air into oxygen and then and trying different ways when you don't have electricity. And along came because as our, our work grew and people began to know what we were doing, uh, uh, along came a group called PATH, who are a big US medical innovator, funded by Gates, and we have a big relationship already with Seattle Children's Hospital. So they came to Uganda to see our work, and we ran a workshop. We brought people from all over the world, the developing world, to talk about this very issue, and what's come of it is a 3D printed blender. I mean, don't you love technology, right? It's this tiny little piece of plastic, and it works on the principle of the Mars space rover. And when you fit it to our kit, our C-Bubble CPAP kit, as the oxygen runs down that little tube that's run through the water, it sucks through the little blender, which looks looks almost like a, uh, you know, a, a peg that you'd use when you hang your washing out. It's a tiny wee thing, but it comes in three sizes and it sucks in exactly the right amount of ambient air. So what goes into this tiny baby's lungs is blended air and oxygen. I mean, it's the coolest thing in the planet. And so we're now in clinical trials. We're rolling it into multiple sites um, uh, with PATH, with Seattle Children's, with some other major, major players. Um, uh, Harvard are now involved and we're going to run it through peer-reviewed clinical trials in multiple settings. We believe that if it's as good as we feel we know it is, that it will probably change the WHO protocol on blended air and oxygen delivery. We will be the expert implementers. It will roll out worldwide. The technology will always be protected for the poor. And to give you a sense of the cost, you can print the whole kit in country and you can, uh, it costs going to cost about 10 to $15, we reckon. Wow. Um, yeah, how cool is that, right? And, it's, you know, a, it's a legitimate game changer. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it makes me feel really, um, as a contrarian, very triumphant because one of the contrary things we've done is we've done tertiary, but we've done really deep work for really long periods. And there's a big trend in the industry that says, you know, go go in for very short periods, exit, otherwise you'll create dependence. I never believed that. I always believed you have to do something to a standard of absolute excellence. Depth comes first, then you get breadth. So it's 20 years of depth and skill in this work that is now going to bring breadth. And, you know, it's, yeah, we're hugely proud of it. It's the coolest thing in the world. This is an interesting one for people that want to drive change and impact. Holding that tension between celebrating the momentum, but keeping that hunger going when you're on on 20-year journeys for transformation. You know, even what you're talking about now, there's still a multi-year journey to, to have the impact and reach. How do you do that as as a founder, as a leader, you know, as someone who's got to motivate teams right around the world? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, first of all, you don't know that it's going to take you 20 years. I remember my True. wonderful father <laughs> said to me when I started, he said, oh, yeah, it'll take you 12 years to get to tweet. And I went, 12 years? Are you kidding? I'll have it nailed in three. So a <laughs> bit, bit of hubris and lack of vision helps. Um, and then you <laughs> then you get into it. And, you know, it's like too big to walk away from. Um, so there's that. Um, I think passion you know, I'm I'm not a good person to talk about balance. I mean, you know, you're you're I, I, you you always amaze me in terms of what you're doing with your all your extreme sports and all the many things you're doing. Um, and so you're a bit of a passion person like me, I think, um, or without question. Definitely. Um, you know, I because I'm driven. First of all, I love my work. I, I don't. I, I love what I do. I mean, it's a bloody. Oh, I'm the luckiest woman you ever met. Every day I get up and go, oh my god, another amazing day. It may be 15 year, 15 hours that I'm working, but I love it. Um, uh, I'm surrounded by astonishing people. I've. I have a way to let down. I cry when things not not in the office if I can avoid it. But you know, I go home at night sometimes when something's gone really wrong, and I have a bloody good cry, and I've got buddies who, who, I mean, the people in my life who've just loved me and supported me, people who tell me you're being an idiot, get over yourself. Um, uh, so having a support network around me, um, having a huge passion for the work, I believe in a little way what we've done is meaningful. Um, oh, extraordinarily. And, but, you know, in a little, yes, but, I, you know, it's, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, it's little, it's one piece of the puzzle, right? Um, and, but it's good to live a life where you feel like, okay, you know, this is bloody, this is good. This is meaningful. You don't know who you're impacting, but I mean, you you know, some of them, but it, it's, so it's that, it's a sense of, yeah, this is good. And it's fun, man. I get to where I'm working on some of the best corporate advisory transactions in Australia. And now I've got, you know, the new business with my 16 amazing, I've got David Gonski as an authorized rep on my license. Guy Fowler is one of my great heroes currently. He's on his fourth transaction, um, running a major corporate piece of corporate advice, with all the fees coming to Adara, working with our business, coming through for our work, you know, get to work with these people. And on the other hand, you know, when I'm next in Uganda, I'll be in the bush somewhere and I'll be sitting with a midwife that I've known now for 20 years who are genuinely feel as my friend who feels the same about me. And we'll be sitting talking about, you know, how do we bring service to these communities? And these people are just astonishing. So, so how have I managed? I've managed with passion, I've managed with support and I've managed with gratitude. Um, and, um, you know, when the Mack truck mows me down, um, or a yak falls off a bloody cliff when I'm up in the Nepal and <laughs> wipes me out, the last thing I will think, no matter what that, what happens, the last thing I know I will think is, my God, this has been fun. Um, and you know, wow, I've been lucky. This has been such a good ride. So I think that's, I, I put fear aside, mm. um, and, and it's just been about joy. So um, I didn't know what the journey was going to look like, but damn, it's been fun. And I have no idea what the journey ahead is going to look like, but I'm betting, you know, that it's going to be more of the same, you know, a crazy roller coaster ride of joy and tears and adventure um, and hopefully some successes along the way as well. I think that's that. all of that is a fairly safe bet. I'd, I'd definitely <laughs> be prepared to put money on the line on that. Now, I wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions about um, your own side of this journey and just getting a sense of of how it is, things that have helped you uh, and guided you along the way. What for you has been the single most transformative experience you've had in your life that you think if, it, if that hadn't happened and it might have mm. been a learning or an insight, a person that you counted that really mm. changed the way you think and look at things? Yeah, gee, that's a good question. There have been quite a few of them. 
because it's a it's an it's an evolution, and that's one thing I'd say. It's not you don't you don't get to the, for me anyway. It wasn't like I got to the end point immediately. It's just been this whole winding journey. Um, uh, I could talk. Uh, there are a few of them, but I'll take you right back to being a, a you know young adult um, uh, to somebody who totally inspired me. Um, woman called Morad Corrigan, who um, actually got a Nobel Prize. She was um, uh, a woman in Northern Ireland living a pretty normal life and her uh, sister's two kids were killed in some um, madness in the in the troubles. And the reason she got the Nobel Prize is she walked out of the morgue identifying the bodies of, of her sister's babies and into a radio station and went on air and said, uh, anybody who wants this madness to end and t- told the story of where she'd come from, you know, meet me, you know, on one of the, you know, one end of the road that runs through both areas of the troubles and, you know, meet me, I'm going to walk from one end to the other and a million people showed up. She began wow. the largest peace movement. She's an ordinary person and lucky she got to stay with us. She came to New Zealand speaking for the peace movement. And so I remember one of the things that struck me about her was that she was just an ordinary person and she'd done this amazing thing. And I'm not sure I'd say that if I hadn't met her, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't. I can't credit any one person or one event, but she certainly was formative in my thinking that as an ordinary Kiwi girl, not as a girl who came from wealth or power or, you know, had it laid out, but that just one person, if you just get out there and give it a shot, if you just do what you believe in, you know, you can do something amazing. Um, so that's one example. Um, uh, other moments... Um, were really big for me, the Springbok Tour coming to New Zealand. Um, you know, as you know, rugby is our national religion um, <laughs> and they brought the Springboks to New Zealand in contravention of the boycott against apartheid. The country divided right down the middle. Half a million people in a tiny wee country got out and protested. So I was heavily involved in that and I was probably 18, 19 at that time. And so I was on the streets protesting twice a week for 90 days. Um, and, you know, people would throw beer bottles at us from from the pubs as we went by. And it was very, it got, it was very lucky no one died. It got very violent. It was very confrontational. And that, that was a period for me of thinking, I will stand up for what I believe in no matter what the cost. Um, you know, there's I've just been a whole series of things like that. Um, uh, that have changed the course of my life. Amazing people, amazing books. At times when um, I've been really stressed, um, uh, I've there are a couple of books. Uh, Anita Roddick's book, Business as Unusual, which I don't know if it's still in print, but you know, I recommend it to anybody who wants to. Actually, Anita Roddick, who founded The Body Shop, um, uh, really honest uh, autobiography really about how she thought that you could use business differently and all the mistakes she made. Uh, another wonderful one, Mountains Beyond Mountains, about a guy called Paul Farmer who started just like us, a sort of dumbass little project in the middle of Haiti without any, you know, plan um, and ended up discovering the most amazing thing about the treatment of tuberculosis, which changed the world. Um, uh, and he founded Partners in Health, which is now world-recognised world leading INGO in the healthcare space. Um, uh, so uh, books, um, yeah, all sorts of people, books, events, moments. I think it's about being open. Mm. Um, what's your filter like, brain? though, when it comes to advice? I'd, I'd love to ask you, what's the best bit of advice you think you got? But also... What's the worst bit of advice that you think you got? And and how did you handle? Because I think there's both, right, in the the, the melting pot of life. And it's just right. as important to be able to discern those ones that are, that are curveballs yeah. thrown to test us. It's so true. Well, 
uh, the thousand times people have told me um, uh, that will fail or you can't do that um, or be very afraid if you do that, it's all going to be over for you. That's there, there's, there's a, a serious amount of that kind of advice that I've been given, mostly by people who don't know me, but also by people who love me, who are afraid for me. Um, I think that's such an important point, that second one as well, uh, is the uh, fear that others can have and can project onto you. I know, that's true. That's interesting, actually. If I can go there for a second, I think that people who really love you um, are afraid for you. And um, and so they sometimes will give you advice that limits what you know your potential is, and it's okay to understand. You have to come from understanding, going, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. They're afraid because they love me. Then there's also a whole bunch of people who give you negative advice because if you do the crazy thing that you're suggesting, it makes them feel bad about themselves. And so you know when you step out of, you're in this machine, right? This that's saying you have to walk down this road, you have to get this job, you have to make partner, you have to get a mortgage, you have to be married, you have to do this, you have to do that. And when people say, actually, that doesn't fit what I am and who I am, you often get a very loud voice that says, "Don't step off the path." You know, my 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 story before about you will never be taken seriously again. Those people. It's you're a mirror reflecting back to them. You're making them feel bad about themselves or or self-analyze often. And so the advice they're giving you is, I think, unconsciously often designed to make them feel okay about their own life choices. So negative advice, lots of negative advice. Um, do you know, I think my father, best advice ever, I don't know if this counts as advice. I had an amazing father who very... Uh, sadly for us, died in an accident now nearly 18 years ago. He's an amazing out-of-construct thinker. And I swear, he must have sat by my bed at night when I was asleep and whispered in my ear as a little girl, you can do anything. Oh, and, wow. You know, That's really, so special. I, mean, I look back on it and go, wow, man, he just, you know, there was just no cap to on us and on me. Um, and that, you know, girls can do anything is something that I, you know, I often... You know, that's a that's a conversation line I run. I had that as a bumper sticker. You know, it's like, you know, the best advice you can give anybody is, you know, you can do it, right? You can do it. And, you know, put aside the voice that tells you you can't. Um, it's a, when, when you're a privileged, privileged person like we are, with living in a country like this, you know, with people who love us, with good educations, with great health, you know, all that stuff, God, the world is just in front of us opening up. It's not the same if, if you and I were born as a girl in the developing world. Boy, the struggle is so different. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably, if that counts as advice, you know. I love that. You I, can do anything. Sort of the unbounded aspiration that that, that sets yeah. up for you to be able to dream with and think with. But also I think yes. that the responsibility you talk about of, of being being in a situation where we do have the ability to have unbounded aspiration in so many ways and what, yes. the responsibility that comes to make sure that we try and uh, share that with others to to make sure we lift others up and we use the the privilege uh, that we've gotten to to make the world better for the fact we were here. Yeah, so I don't think we can lecture people about that, right? I don't. Yeah. I think lecturing people is a waste of time. You know, um, what well, all you can do is run your own race and hopefully model something. Mm. And you know, I am an ordinary Kiwi girl. I don't want people to think I'm, you know, any kind of superwoman or you know, I I and and um, you know, I was born with such huge luck standing on such a platform. So for me, yes, there's this there's huge opportunity, but there's also huge responsibility. But everybody has to find their own place with that, right? And their own time. Um, how will they unfold that piece of themselves? 
um, uh, where they recognise their own good fortune um, and do something with it to help their neighbours in in some form. Everybody finds their own place with that, right? Um, so, but yeah, I think it's about for me anyway. It's about being defiant, uh, and it's a bit about a modeling something, hopefully doing your best so that somebody else will go, wow, she did that. I can do it too. Um, that's And just encouraging other people to get out and give it their best shot. Audit, I couldn't be more grateful for your time today. There's two quick questions I want to ask before we finish up. For those who are listening who are thinking about how they have their own impact, how they can take an idea and turn it into action, what's your advice? Uh, my advice is, first of all, don't let anyone stop you. Um, uh my advice is um, also take it very seriously. You know, you have to bring, you know, you have to put your serious hat on. Um, dr- it, vision and dreaming is essential. And then you have to underpin it with hard slog work, right? Um, and um, figure out, you know, if you want to run a business, you've got to figure out how to manage your cash flow. You've got to figure out how you manage staff. You've got to figure out how you differentiate your product in the market. It's got to be more than a great tagline or a great brand. Um, be prepared to do the work um, uh, and, you know, and and open your eyes. There's so much learning. There's so many people that can help. Um, uh, but, you know, don't let anyone stop the dream. That's really my biggest piece of advice. And for those who have a voice in their veins, particularly women uh, that runs with the blood in their veins, it says, who are you to think you can do that? Or, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to fail. I'm not good enough. The only advice I've got is recognize uh, that that is likely the voice of thousands of years of being told that you are subordinate or not good enough. Um, It's a voice that runs in the blood of almost every woman I know. You have to recognize the voice and then refuse to listen to it. Um, So so I guess that's probably my off-the-cuff best advice for what it's worth for those that are starting out. And by God, there are people starting out that are going to do bigger, better, smarter things than I could ever dream of. Constantly impressed um, with the new wave of thinking that's coming through um, and this new generation. Well, it's exciting, I think, that idea of just building on the shoulders of giants, you know, that that we continue to advance and progress and evolve what's gone before and, and at the same time are grateful and and mindful of of the reasons that that was done and how that was done. We learn from it. Yeah, we and, you know, we've got it, the internet. Oh, my God. You know, we've got access to so much information, so many voices. You know, sit yourself down for a couple of weeks and just learn, you know, suck up information um, because it's all there for us now in a way. You know, there is the world is surrounded by this beautiful web of knowledge um, and giving. There's a tribe out there. There's very little we think of that somebody else hasn't tried that we can learn from. Um, so take advantage of it. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 all waiting for us. And to those that are listening, for you, what's the call to action you'd like to give them today? What would you like oh, to encourage yeah. them to do? Great question. Um, uh, call to action really is um, just step forward. Um, we are living in a profoundly dividing world. I've, I've I've uh, really been uh, so shocked by the speed of polarity um, that we're seeing, the way that we're moving into separate camps, the lack of people wanting to sit in nuance. We want to sit, the world is forcing us into a place of judgment against other. 
Um, and it's pretty frightening. It's frightening from a human rights perspective. And the great thing about that is we are seeing extraordinary greatness rising. You know, we saw 4 million people, women out on the streets after the election of um, uh, Donald Trump. We are seeing the court system standing up, the, ju- the judicial system, the, uh, the media, journalists realizing, oh my God, we're a cornerstone of democracy. Really, we're seeing people starting to realize, wow, the things I take for granted could be taken away. Um, and, you know, we see that even today in the latest uh, series of tweets about uh, transgender people no longer being allowed uh, in the US military. Um, so the, the, the key message, I guess, is really just step forward and stand up for what you believe in. You know, the vo- every voice is needed and every voice can make change. We have the greatest uh, ability to contact, communicate, connect with each other, run our businesses globally, think globally, be global citizens than we've ever had in human history. And that's the internet. Use it. But don't sit silent. That you know, don't don't just stand back and lead a life that's ordinary because the world needs every single one of us, whether we reach out, our role is reaching out to our neighbor. Um, or the mentally ill or running a really good business that does great stuff or being a philanthropist or coming up with new out-of-the-box ways of thinking about products and services that help people or it's being an activist, you know, whatever it is, um, the world needs every single one of the people listening to this to stand up. And, you know, man, I'm counting on it um, because that's what's going to take us back to the place that we need to be in as as a global community um, it's going to be this wave of people standing up and, and um, we're going to see extraordinary greatness in the next, um, I think, three, five, ten years as people recognise that uh, some of the stuff that's happening, some of the language that's being used, it's not okay. Um, so, yeah, just step forward. It's a wonderful and uplifting uh, call to action to finish on. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're an absolute inspiration and and I thank you for your pioneering, you know, from the bottom of my heart for the the path that that's blazed. I think there's a lot that's said about you can only be what you can see and to see women, but to see an, an innovative leader like yourself working in the way that you've done, carving out new models, being prepared to be courageous and and defy what people think is the way things should be done and, and to deliver extraordinary impact through it, uh, for me, just raises the bar in the eyes of so many that are following in in. Uh, in the generation to come to go, wow, you know, I, I could do that. What what could I think about making my mark on the world through doing? So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for so generously sharing your time and your insight today. For those who are listening who want to connect with you and support Adara's work, where's the best place they can go or how can yep. they best reach out? Yeah, really good question. We're on uh, Twitter. So have a look at us as Adara Group on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter myself. We obviously have a Facebook um, uh, presence. We've got a website. We're adaragroup.org. Um, we've got an office in Sydney um, full of pe- people who are passionate about social justice, including um, corporate finance uh, uh, execs and development specialists. So there's just reach out to us. We're, um, we're always keen to engage, um, help, support. Um, and so you can do that um, in cyberspace or you can do that directly <laughs> by rocking up um, and coming to see us at our offices. And thanks for, um, for what a treat. I've, I've been drinking tea instead of coffee, but it was a total treat to to uh, to chat to you, Holly. And as you know, I'm cheering you on. You and uh, young leaders like you are going to change our world and do much greater things than I've done. Um, so it's um, great to be a part of that and I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat. 
Thank you so much for being with us. And for those who are wanting more information on the Adara Group and Audet, we'll have uh, all those details in the show notes as well so you can follow up and reach out and get involved. Thank you for your time. And Fantastic. This, this concludes today's Coffee Pods with Audet Excel. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom, Thanks for fueling your difference with me.